From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called, Oh, There Be Players That I Have Seen Play. Each production of Shakespeare starts, of course, with the playwright's words. It passes through the eyes, mind, and talents of directors, costume designers, set designers, sometimes musical arrangers, But for the majority of audience members, Shakespeare is brought to life by the actors and actresses who speak his lines. In 2015, the eminent Shakespeare scholar Stanley Wells sat down to consider all of the most outstanding Shakespeare performers from past to present and essentially create his own personal Hall of Fame. He's written about these artists in a book called Great Shakespeare Actors, Burbage to Branna. He's interviewed by Stephanie Kay. You ask early on in the book about greatness and how to define it. What makes a great actor, as opposed to merely a good one or really competent? Yes, it's a difficult question to answer. It's, of course, a very personal matter, whether whether you're bowled over by an actor. That's what I mean by a great actor, one that bowls you over in some way. This, This has worked most often for me with some actors of the past, like, above all, Laurence Olivier. You could go to Laurence Olivier performance. It was a special occasion you knew before you went, actually. And he had a magnetic quality which transcended mere ability, mere technical ability. And, of course, you can be a great actor without being a great Shakespeare actor. Uh, Shakespeare makes special demands on actors, especially in relation to the language of the plays, though not by any means entirely, because uh, some of Shakespeare's greatest effects actually are produced in some of his silences. Uh, in, in Coriolanus, for example, a moment that Olivier made a great moment out of was a, a silent moment. There's a famous stage direction in that play, holds her by the hand, silent, when he's having to go through a crisis in response to his mother, Volumna, as pleased that he uh, allow, that he save Rome virtually by by not attacking Rome, so the, the, all sorts of things go towards creating a great performance and a great actor. And you say in the book that there can be actually a very intimate connection between great actors and their audiences, a sexual. Uh, connection. Yes, yes. Well, I think w- w- with any actors, that's likely. I mean, you know, the, the fact is that one is seeing a human body on the stage, uh, and that body is communicating with with the audience in various ways through the eyes and so on. And I think there is. I quote actually a uh, uh, senior dramatic critic, Michael Billington, on this. Uh, yes, I, I think uh, some actors v- uh, visibly flirt with their audiences, <laughs> and uh, and I, I think you know that's a perfectly legitimate thing. Of course, it's often su- subliminated in, in in ways, but inevitably one is responding. One body in the audience is responding to another body on the stage. You mention a number of the earliest actors in the yeah. book achieve star status as contemporary accounts show. Now, when you're analyzing who the best actors were in, say, Shakespeare's own time, what source material do you draw on to inform you that this person was better than anybody else? Are you relying on written re- accounts or re- reviews? Uh, yes, um, the, the the reports of people who were present at a performance, whether in one's own lifetime or before one's own lifetime, are the best way of uh, appreciating performance because to be present at the performance, it's a sort of holistic experience. If, if, if I watch a film 
of Olivier or of Peggy Ashcroft, it, there's a distancing happened already in it because it, it, it was recorded 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, and so you might be distracted by the unusual bowl haircut of the times or the strange well, that's makeup. Well, that, that sort of thing happens. Uh, yes, the technicalities of recording have a distancing effect, I think. Mm. Whereas if, uh, if you're reading, say, a great critic like William Hazlitt in the Romantic period or like Ken Tynan in the 1960s or 70s, you're reading somebody who is telling you what it was like. So a lot of my work in writing the book involved my going to biographies, autobiographies, to theatre reviews. So I'm relying to, to a certain extent on, on the opinions of people who saw them. There are no reviews in Shakespeare's time. Newspaper reviewing hadn't started. Newspapers hadn't, hadn't really... Well, there were some sorts of newspapers, but not in, in our sense of the word. So the evidence is very slight. But there are some accounts of performances, but mostly one has to go simply on the reputation of the actors in their own time. There are one or two accounts. There was a a very odd man called Simon Foreman, who did leave accounts of seeing some plays at the Globe. They're not reviews in our current modern sense of the word, but they're enough to give us some sense of what it was like. The, the great actor of Shakespeare's company, undoubtedly, was Richard Burbage. He worked with Shakespeare from the very beginning of both of their careers. Um, it, from 1594, Shakespeare and Burbage were leaders of the Lord Chamberlains, which later became the King's Men, and... Burbage lived on beyond Shakespeare, beyond Shakespeare's death. And we do have, for example, uh, epitaphs about him, uh, memorial verses about him referring to his performances. Well, let me ask you another question about Richard Burbage. You write about an obituary that mentioned his ability to play the roles of older men when he was young. Do you think it's harder to go in that direction or to try to play younger characters when you're an older actor? And same for a woman. (laughs) I think probably it's harder to play younger characters when you're an older actor. Of course, Shakespeare is quite convenient in this way, in that he often doesn't tell us how old his characters are. Uh, Usually, in fact, he doesn't tell us. Now, some of them have got to be young. Romeo and Juliet have got to be young. We know that, in fact, Juliet is one of the few people who does uh, who is clearly identified as being under 14. Uh, but uh, a great many of the others are not. I mean, one of the greatest performances I've seen was Paul Schofield as King Lear when he was only 40. Uh, before long, Derek Jacobi, who's now 76, is going to be playing Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet with Kenneth Branagh's company. And Mercutio is normally thought of as a young man's part. So I, I think uh, it, it's more a matter of ability than of vraisemblance, as the French say, than, than of verisimilitude. And that a good actor is, is, make, is making us believe things which are not true. I mean, that's what actors are doing all the time. It's their job. Well, let's turn to Will Kemp. Who was he? Well, Will Kemp was an actor in Shakespeare's company. Uh, he was one of the founding members of, of the Lord Chamberlain's Men in 1594. He was famous as a comic actor. And he did leave a book, a remarkable book, Kemp's Nine Days Wonder, which is the story of how he Morris danced over the period of a month, taking uh, nine whole days during that month from London to Norwich, uh, which was a big publicity stunt. When he got to Norwich, he was a by the Lord Mayor, who rewarded him handsomely. Uh, so we have bits of information about him like that. Now, in a yeah. podcast we did earlier 
on comedy in Shakespeare, we talked a lot about Will Kemp. He seems to be someone whose renown was fairly widespread. Yes. But when we think about what's written in the first folio, how much of Will Kemp's comic business do you think is is actually written down and how much was just hinted at? Uh, I don't think much of it is written down. The first folio doesn't give us descriptions of performance. This is partly because Shakespeare was writing for his own company of actors. He didn't need to write elaborate stage directions because he knew he'd be present during the rehearsals for a performance. And so we do know that Kemp, that he had Kemp in mind because in the first printing, it wasn't first printed in the folio, but in the first printing of Much Ado About Nothing, in, in a quarter paperback of 1600, the name of Will Kemp appears several times where instead of the character, Dogbury, the character whom, whom he was playing. But no, I don't think we have much, we haven't got much evidence of precisely what Kemp did on the stage. We just know that he was a great personality. He was famous on the continent as well as in England. Okay, let's move next to David Garrick, one of the great actors of the 1700s. And he's also known, though, as a theater entrepreneur. Uh, how does that work into his reputation as an actor? Well, he, he first made his reputation as an actor when he was in his early 20s. He came to London, walked to London with Samuel Johnson, uh, and he put on a performance as Richard III, which was a sensation. It, was, it became instantly the, the thing to do, to go and see David Garrick as Richard III. And before long, there were only two major theatres in London at that time, Drury Lane and Covent Garden, and before long he, he, he became the manager of Covent Garden. So he was both a theatre a manager, entrepreneur, if you like, uh, and an actor. His management of the theatre was a very important one because he did, he had very high standards, and he did a lot to well to clean up the theatre in a way. We, for example, it had been common in his early career for people to uh, sh- go to the theatre mainly to show themselves and even to s- sit on the stage, and yeah. the, which which is also something that had happened in Shakespeare's own time. And Garrick eventually, as a manager of the theatre succeeded in banishing spectators from the stage. He was he was a, a, a very versatile man. Uh, he was a, a businessman. He was a collector of books. He adapted some of Shakespeare's plays to suit the, the conditions in which theatre operated in his time. But above all, he was a very great actor. And we have some wonderful accounts of him in roles such as Hamlet, for example. We're lucky there was a German visitor called Georg Lechten, who came to London and wrote the, the first really detailed accounts of performances by any English actors. And they are detailed. They give us, uh, I quote them, of course, in, in my book, uh, they give us really uh, vivid details of precisely what Garrick did on stage. And you mentioned Garrick was really good at dying on stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that's a, a, a necessary uh, accomplishment if you're playing tragedy, isn't it? Sure, um, a lot of characters in Shakespeare die, so I guess you've got yes, to be pretty good uh, at it. Yes, uh, and he, he, it's, it, but it is an example of how Shakespeare's plays are, are not simply verbal artifacts, of how the, you know, the, the actor is not merely speaking, the actor is portraying people often in intense emotional and intense physical situations. Hamlet's death, for example, or King Lear's death, 
these are, are and in, in, in Macbeth, actually Garrick rewrote Macbeth to give Macbeth a dying speech, which Shakespeare had failed to provide for him. I remember uh, seeing uh, Richard III when I saw Olivier play Richard III. I still vividly remember his death throes in, in, in that. He, he, he lay on his back like a great black beetle with his legs and his arms waving in the air, and it was very thrilling. And, it, of course, it was a non-verbal piece of acting. That's partly why we can go on seeing Shakespeare's plays with excitement and pleasure time after time, because every different actor produces a different sort of fusion with the words, with the role. Uh, the, so what you're getting is both Shakespeare and the actor, and, of course, the actor as directed by often great directors. Well, let's talk about Sarah Siddons. Tell us about the era she lived in. And you mentioned she has 11 siblings, all of whom work in the theater. Was that unusual for her time? No, it wasn't particularly unusual. Uh, One of the things that struck me as I was writing my book, in fact, was how many great actors came from theatrical families. It's true to the uh, the present day. I mean, Vanessa Redgrave, for example, is the daughter of a very great actor, Sir Michael Redgrave. Sarah Siddons' brother was John Philip Campbell, who was the greatest Hamlet and Coriolanus of his time. Uh, And her other brothers were actors of varying degrees of ability. One of them, Stephen Campbell, was famous mainly for being so fat that he could play Falstaff without padding. Uh, But uh, Sarah was undoubtedly a very great actress, mainly in tragic roles. But some of the accounts of her, which I quote in my book, of course, like by somebody like William Hazlitt, show that, especially as Lady Macbeth, that was a really uh, great part. She could terrify an audience. There's a a wonderful remark by a playwright at the time, actually, who writing about her, her as Lady Macbeth, he says, I smelt blood. I swear it, I smelt blood. Uh, you know, she, she, she could clearly hypnotise audiences, and uh, I, I think the, the eyes are so important in acting, aren't they? So many actors, you can do so much with the eyes. And Sarah Siddons, well, she hypnotised audiences. And you mentioned she got terrible reviews. How did she come back from terrible reviews? Well, uh, she, in her early career, yes, she didn't succeed very well. Uh, this has happened. In, this is this is not uncommon. I mean, a few actors like David Garrick are successes from the very start. Uh, others seem to have to make their way upward to learn their their art uh, it, more slowly. Even Judy Dench, for example, was uh, her her earliest performances were not particularly well received, but she went on learning. They have imagination. They have the capacity to learn. Siddons developed, Judy Dench developed. She didn't see at one time she never thought she would play Lady Macbeth or Cleopatra, and yet she was great in both roles. Now, in your chapter on William Charles McCready, you write yeah. a wonderful description of him restraining himself, both in terms of gesture and voice. Can you yes. describe that? Yes, McCready, uh, again, it's a matter partly of training. You see, in his early career, he, he knew he had to learn. And he knew that there was a danger that he would overact, I suppose, that he would use gesture too much, for example. So he has an interesting account, which I quote, of how he would actually bind his arms to his sides and make himself speak the most passionate speeches, he says, of Macbeth or King Lear without using gesture, just so that the the, the passion came out of his eyes. And I, I, I include in my book a, a painting of MacReady, uh, which his eyes, are clearly the the strongest feature. Uh, So it's a matter of restraint. It's it's a a fact that actors can 
often do most by doing little. Uh, It's the old adage, don't just do something, stand there. Some actors uh, uh, achieve their greatest effects through some very simple means. Did you get the sense that he did the binding and this restraint to prevent himself from doing something that everyone was doing at that time or to prevent himself from doing what bad actors were doing at the time? Uh, Yes, well... uh, uh, I think he thought that people were bad actors if they gestured too much, if they flailed their arms around too much. So, yes, I, I, I think he was uh, trying to improve on current acting techniques. And what about today? Do do they kind of tend toward the more extravagant <laughs> movement? Uh, yes, I think so. Though, uh, acting goes through phases. You, 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 sometimes you get, you get periods when actors are more stylized, more artificial-seeming than others. Well, let's turn to Ellen Terry now. Uh, yeah. She started very young, but she wasn't very good. Uh, there was a negative review about her performance as Puck. Um, at, but then she kind of came back to the stage. And after she took off for several yeah. years, she got married. She had a child. Did her, acting, <laughs> did her acting benefit from that time off, her experience? Well, I suppose so. Uh, she, she, she was a child actress at first, playing uh, small roles like, well, Puck is not a small role, of course, uh, with Charles Keane, the, the, the son of the great Edmund Keane. Uh, then she had an affair with an architect and designer, Godwin, as a result of which uh, she gave birth to Gordon Craig, who became a great theatre designer. And during that period that she was living with him, she went off the stage, uh, but she came back, as you say, but not particularly. Oh, I mean, when she's in her quite early years, in her 20s, and she then became the, the, the greatest and the best-loved English actress for many years, right until the early 20th century. She was as famous, especially in, in comic roles. She wasn't primarily a, a tragic actress. Her greatest role, or I would most like to have seen her in, was Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing. So she started so young, six years old, and sometimes when I see children on stage on almost any performance, I sort of cringe (laughs) because, you know, I mean, you're not exactly sure what you're going to get out of them. No, that's true. Uh, 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 Nowadays, especially, I think, because it's less easy to train them nowadays. On the other hand, children can perform well, but there are some important children's roles in Shakespeare, like Prince Arthur in King John, for example. It's quite a long role, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very difficult to find a young a boy young enough to look the part who has enough technique to speak the part. He has some quite difficult verse to speak. So it is quite difficult to cast the children's parts in Shakespeare. In Shakespeare's own time, however, I think they would have had more training than it's usual uh, for for young people to get nowadays. It is difficult, though, to find really good juveniles. Well, with Ellen Terry, tell us about her correspondence with George Bernard Shaw. Yes, uh, Ellen Terry was a very intelligent woman. She wasn't a highly educated woman, but she was had a natural intelligence. And Shaw fell in love with her. Shaw was writing plays, of course, and also right in her early career, she was he was writing a lot of theatre criticism. He wrote wonderful theatre criticism, and he he uh, so he had to write about the actors of the time in public in his reviews. But he also corresponded with some of them, especially with Ellen Terry, and then later with another actress. Is Patrick Campbell. Uh, and Bernard Shaw wrote very, very lively letters to Ellen Terry, and she wrote back uh, in, in a very characterful way, especially when she was rehearsing the, the role of Imogen in, in Cymbeline. And Shaw gave her lots of advice about how to play that role. He, he 
uh, you see, he had then to review Ellen Terry, even though he'd had a great influence on the performance that she gave. <laughs> uh, but but Shaw's uh, correspondence with Ellen Terry is, is one of the great theatre books, and Ellen Terry's own memoir also is, is a very delightful piece of reading about uh, because she had a natural skill in writing even though as I say she wasn't a highly educated woman she she wrote with I, I, I say in my book in fact that to read her letters is almost like hearing Rosalind Shakespeare's heroine of as you like it speak she has that sort of of liveliness and spontaneity in, in the way that she writes it's really delightful well if we saw some of the great actors say from the 18th or 19th century today do you think we'd see them as great that's a very difficult question. To whether, if we saw Garrick now, would we think of him as great? Possibly not, because he was acting within the conventions, the theatrical conventions, the staging conventions of his own time, and we can't transform ourselves back into 18th-century people. That the actor's art is bound up with the period in which the acting is given. And so I, I think possibly not. I think it's possible if we saw them now, we would would have to acknowledge they were great for the, for their own audiences. But after all, that's what they're there for. They're great to be great in their time, not to be great in the eyes of posterity. Well, in these days with social media, the curatorial yeah. role seems to be very diminished. Anyone with access to Facebook or Twitter can weigh in, usually does weigh in, on whether they think someone is great or terrible. What do you yeah. see as the role of a book like yours? Yes, everybody has opinions about actors. You don't need to be a trained theatre critic to have an opinion about a performance. My book is intended for readers who, uh, who enjoy Shakespeare on the stage. It's intended uh, for readers who want to know what actors of the past were like. And I hope that, actor, that readers going to my book will get a sense of what it was like to see Garrick or Edmund Keane or John Gielgud, actors you can no longer see, uh, will get a sense of why it was worth going to the theatre to see them and what they brought to Shakespeare. So I, I hope that my book will enable people, help people to read Shakespeare's plays and see the plays with more understanding of the greatness of the, the mind and imagination that created these roles for great actors. Dr. Stanley Wells, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Stanley Wells is Honorary President of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, a professor emeritus at the University of Birmingham, and the author of numerous books on Shakespeare, including his latest, Great Shakespeare Actors, Burbage to Brana. He was interviewed by Stephanie Kay. Oh, There Be Players That I Have Seen was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kernpaster and Esther Farrington. We had help from Timothy Olmsted at WAMU in Washington, D.C. We'd also like to thank Beverly Hemming, the Corporate Communications Manager at the Stratford-on-Avon District Council, for allowing Dr. Wells to speak from their recording unit at Elizabeth House. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.